1: A city where intrigue lurks around every corner.
0: I was heading towards the lakefront. Lo and behold, I saw this kind of tawny brown lump on the sidewalk. And next thing I knew, it threw wings and it was flying right past my face.
2: Beyond the soaring skyscrapers, the asphalt jungle, and the sheen of the bean is another city. A city of shadows.
0: There's always that
1: mysterious group. There was always, you know, some mystery of, you know, this group or
2: them or they, whoever they are, you know.
1: WBEZ's Curious City sets out to solve everyday mysteries sent to us by listeners like you.
2: For the next hour, we're opening up the Case Files to bring you a collection of strange tales about Chicago we're calling
3: Mystery City. City.
2: Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
4: Curious City on WBEZ is supported by Wintrust. With a network of community banks designed to support and offer resources to business owners and decision makers. More about Wintrust's community banking at Wintrust.com. Curious City is supported by UChicago's Basic Program of Liberal Education for Adults. An online sample discussion on Machiavelli's The Prince is on January 19th. Registration at basicprogram.uchicago.edu.
1: A city on a lake and on the make, home
2: to millions of people and even more stories. A city of epic contrasts, of secrets hidden in plain sight amid soaring skyscrapers and shadowy alleys, full of intriguing details that should, if you're paying attention, lead to questions. And it's our job to answer them. Hi, I'm Jesse Dukes, the audio producer of Curious City. And I'm John Facile, independent producer and reporter. WBEZ's Curious City answers questions from listeners like you. You can ask us about Chicago, the region, and its people, and we assign gumshoe reporters to find answers, taking you on the journey with us. What you're about to hear is a collection of stories birthed from the puzzlement of our listeners. Like, what's at the bottom of the river? Why can't I see the stars at night? And what happened to the contents of the toilet I just flushed?
1: Uh, yeah... All this and more in a special hour-long episode that we're calling...
3: Mystery City.
1: Let's start with a riddle anybody who lives in a city has
2: encountered. The case of the hanging gym shoes. Thrown up on power lines by persons unknown. Reporter Mara Knight hits the streets.
4: I'm answering a question about a perplexing urban phenomenon gym shoes hanging from power lines. Our question comes from Matt LaTourette. He lives in Aurora, but grew up in Chicago's Belmont Central neighborhood, and he always noticed the shoes dangling from above. He wondered, who did that, and why?
5: There's always that
1: mysterious group. There was always, you know, some mystery of, you know, this group, or them, or they, whoever they are, you know.
4: This shoe hanging? Clearly, it happens and the city of Chicago has data to prove it. Over the past seven years, city workers received at least 6,000 requests to remove shoes hanging from telephone or electrical wires, including a pair of cowboy boots and a rubber ducky. But getting to the bottom of Matt's question of why, that's difficult, and we're not the first to try. There's a mini-documentary about shoe tossing and plenty of explainer articles and they're full of theories. Theories like the shoes come from kids taunting each other, or from losing a bet, or in a more serious vein, people say hanging shoes mark gang territory, or memorialize victims of gun violence, or they signal where to buy drugs. Well, I'm here to firm up some of these theories about shoe tossing with first-hand accounts wherever I can. Let's start with the taunting theory. Here's a call we got from a listener.
6: I think I was 14, it was about 1970, and I was wearing my gym shoes around my neck, uh, tied together by the laces, and a friend of mine, who was, was perhaps not the best friend in the world, uh, used to like to taunt me to some extent, and he was throwing them up in my shoes up in the air, uh, pretending, I think, that he was going to throw them over the wire, But then he succeeded, and uh, there they hung. Uh, Eventually, some time later, the uh, shoestrings broke, and I got my shoes back. Thanks.
4: Another theory? That people toss shoes after losing a wager. Juan Molina called us about that.
7: I lost a bet, and my buddies threw my shoes up there. Uh, We tied the laces together and threw it up.
4: And actually, Juan gave us another reason. Spite.
7: I did it once, mostly because I survived soccer camp, and they were my cleats. I didn't want to go to soccer, and it was something my parents forced, and I ended up throwing it up there. Those were just regular Nike cleats.
4: Okay, so we know some shoes on power lines just come from kids being kids. But what about the gang and urban violence angle? For that, I asked my friend Patrick Starr, a guy I've known for years, serving a life sentence in a Missouri state prison. In the 90s, he was a high-ranking member of the Bloods Gang back in Kansas City. Today, he coaches other inmates on cutting their gang ties. When he was young, he'd throw shoes on power lines.
7: To us in Kansas City, it was about your crew and y'all marking y'all neighborhood. And when, when, Did it have anything to do like with the gangs? Lunch. Now back, this was before gangs, because you go back to like 84, 85, there was no physical gangs like we know them today in Kansas City like Bloods, Crips, GDs, Vice Lords. But it was groups in Kansas City at this time, like school cliques, like, like the hard boys, sporty boys, deaf boys, virgin boys, freaky boys, AKA boys, the 57th Street Road dogs, which was us, 69th Street dogs. We called them crews instead of gangs.
4: Patrick said he had fond memories of tossing his own Nike or Convert sneakers
7: tie them two strings together and you hold one shoe and you flip that thing around and it goes right up there and the momentum of the two shoes if it can hit that wire right in the middle of that string then it just whips it around there and it's locked on there you can't get it out
4: do you have to like wind up
7: yeah and you do more missing than you do getting it that's for sure Unless you just get extremely lucky the first time, you're going to be throwing that thing up there for a few minutes. I've seen guys pull their cars up. This call is from a correctional
4: facility and may be monitored and recorded.
7: Just to get that extra five or six feet closer.
4: I gave Patrick Starr some homework. Asked the guys in the Missouri prison about another theory, that hanging shoes represent a death in or by a gang. A couple days later, he called back.
7: The Chicago guys and a lot of the St. Louis guys they said that that represented guys who's killed from each neighborhood, you know, whether it's the gang guys or just homeboys from the hood or the block. And it kind of turned into a nice little yard topic to where guys were starting to run up. Hey, man, this is what that mean in my city or my town. Or like I said, we don't know nothing about that.
4: So even among the inmates, there was no consensus. Lastly, I went after the drugs angle. The most common theory was that dangling shoes signal where to buy drugs. We talked to Chicago police, but they declined to comment. So I got a secondhand perspective from Robert Aspholm. He was a childhood shoe tosser, but today he's a social worker and a doctoral student at UIC.
8: I mean, to me, it's like an urban legend, especially the drug spot thing, because it's like if kids in the
4: neighborhood so-called know that this is what this is supposed to mean, then the police definitely know, you know, so and no one's going to put, What they're doing out there in that type of way, you know, to to set themselves up, you know, to be arrested or whatever. But on the other hand, Ashton says he's not surprised people associate gangs and drugs and shoes. These types of activities take place within, you know, marginalized urban areas. So there's some overlap as far as open air drug markets, you know, people being killed and shoes going up on telephone wires. It's within that wider urban milieu that these types of events take place. Well, maybe Asphalt is right. Maybe the mystery, the why, behind shoe tossing is just this simple. A coming-of-age story of inner-city youth colored by its own regional quirks and mixed up into the larger urban milieu of gangs, drugs, and violence. Any particular pair of shoes could be up there for a variety of reasons, but it's probably not a place to buy drugs. One important piece to this question, however, is that when we looked at detailed city data, it showed that requests to remove shoes hanging from power lines has dropped by 71% over the past six years. And so even if we do keep trying to explain sneakers hanging from power lines, you should know that more and more this, quote, mystery is becoming a mystery of the past.
2: That was reporter Mara Benite. Our next story takes you to Chicago's subterranean depths, like Orpheus in search of his bride. This descent into the helter-skelter labyrinth of the city's network of pipes retraces a journey that begins every time you flush the toilet. And its subject hails from the very bowels of, well, your bowels. We're talking about doo-doo. Feces. Poop. Hold your nose for case file number two. Mystery. The disappearing stool. Shannon Heffernan reports.
9: What happens when you flush the toilet in Chicago? If it sounds like a question a five-year-old would ask, well, that's because it is. When did we start thinking about that? Kind of around the time when you were first learning how to use the potty, I think. That's Emily Hendel. Her daughter Satchel was a little shy when she first met us and occupied coloring. She thought maybe all the poop went to a big tank somewhere in their house. Where do you think the tank might be? In the basement. Now, before you tune out and think, I know this one. I'm no five-year-old. I want you to stop and think. Do you really? Because it's actually kind of important. Ever since humans settled in big cities, it's been a problem we had to face. Where do we put the poop? Because if you don't deal with it, people are gonna get sick. And dealing with millions and millions of gallons of poo, it's a complicated task. So today, we walk you and Emily and Satchel through the highlights of what happens after you flush. You'll hear them react to what we learned starting from their house. Could you maybe show us where your toilet is? Could we start with with that and we can look at the pipes and and maybe try to start tracking it from that spot? Mm Mm-hmm, just a minute. So see that when you flush it, it goes down here, it goes into the pipes. But come with me, we'll show you where that goes after that. All that water flows out. And it goes to pipes that run down the middle of the street. Those pipes go to one of seven different sewage plants run by the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. One of those plants, Stickney, is just southwest of the city. I talked to Reed Drink, the head of operations at Stickney. If he needs to, he can process a million gallons of sewage in a minute.
6: So I can do in a minute what an average size treatment plant does in a day.
9: He says his plant takes up 400 acres, the size of 302 football fields. It's the biggest sewage plant
6: in the world. We are number one in the number two business. Number two. Egg poop is number two
9: and pee is number one. Yeah. Once the sewage gets to the plant, the first step is to go through the coarse screens. The screens are there to stop really big things from getting into the sewage plant, like branches or pieces of concrete. Remember, it's not just what we flush that ends up in the plant. It's rainwater and all the stuff that washes off the streets and into the sewers. Redring says they've found all kinds of things. Fish, turtles. How do turtles get in there? They're so big, this big.
6: A bowling ball. We had a bowling ball come in.
10: Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> That's ridiculous! <laughs> it is ridiculous.
6: Well, our sewer crew found a prosthetic leg. We've seen money. Whenever there's a storm, a lot of guys like to work near the coarse screens because money comes up on the conveyors. The next step is pretty
9: simple. The settling tanks. And here things, well, settle. Solids sink to the bottom. Fats and oils float to the top. Big scrapers come along and take both away to a landfill. The clean water in the middle flows into a big tank. Bigger than the Willis Tower? Maybe not as big as the Willis Tower, but as big as your house.
10: Like oh, whoa!
9: Yeah. It doesn't look like much is happening in this big tank, but there is a whole world of microorganisms below the surface. The woman who looks at the microorganisms is Tony Glymph Martin. She calls these microorganisms "bugs."
2: And a lot of people ask us, where do we get the bugs from? Well, when you flush the toilet when it rains. All of that brings in this millions and millions of microorganisms to the treatment system. But what we do here is we provide an environment
9: for a particular type of microorganism. Remember, sewage can make us sick. It's full of all kinds of nasty stuff like bacteria and viruses. But not all microorganisms are bad for us. In fact, most of the bugs in this tank eat the stuff that can hurt us. And it's Glymph Martin's job to keep the helpful ones happy. She spends her day counting, literally one by one, the different types of bugs. Look, cause we have a little counter here so you can go, this is amoebas, flagellates, free swimmers, crawlers. This gives her clues, tells her if they need to make adjustments to keep the microorganisms in balance. She gave us a video of one of her favorites. This one's called a water bear. What? Yeah. It's kinda cute, right? A little snout. Uh, so cute. <laughs> and so when she sees these guys in the water, she's like, okay, Our water is doing okay. They're a good indicator to have in the system because they're very sensitive to ammonia and toxicity. And so if we see them thriving in the system, then it means that the water is relatively clean. So after all the microorganisms have removed most of the bad stuff, the water is sent to the river system. But there's still some stuff left over. Solids. We are going to skip a few steps here. Basically, what you need to know is that solids get dried out and go through another round of microorganisms. Eventually, one of the places the solids can end up is in a compost pile. Compost? Compost. Ooh. Do you have, I a, compo- have a compost? Bin. You do. And what happens in yes. your compost bin? What do you know about compost? It gets stinky. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it gets stinky. Compost gets stinky at the Stickney Plant too. I learned this during a tour with soil scientist Lochvinder Handel. He shows me gigantic—I mean, gigantic—piles of compost. Oh yeah, it's like a spectrum of stink here. Right. The farther I go along, the more right. stink.
1: Yeah, because it's early in the process.
9: The faraway piles are newer and smellier. Nearby, the piles have been sitting for months. As they sit, they get hot. And it kills off some of the harmful stuff. The result is a super-rich compost called biosolids. There's actually this big, beautiful greenhouse right in the middle of the sewage plant. It's full of orchids and lush grass. Here, Handel tests how well the plants do in biosolids.
1: Nature is the best way of recycling everything. You can see here we are growing uh, some spinach.
9: Biosolids from Chicago are already being spread on golf courses and parks. In fact, one day, the district says Chicagoans might be able to buy it for their gardens. The district says the biggest challenge to selling biosolids will be the ick factor. No one wants to think about poop when they smell their garden flowers. But if someone isn't thinking about it, taking care of the pipes and the tanks, the microbes, the compost, then the rest of us wouldn't be able to flush and forget. Satchel, next time you poop, I want you to think about this, okay? We will.
1: We have a fantastic animation on our website that illustrates exactly what happens
2: to Chicago's poop. It's at
1: wbez.org curiouscity Curious City.
2: We first aired this story in 2015. Satchel is now eight and not so interested in poop. Today, outer space and animals are what spark her curiosity.
1: Up next, we'll bring to light the secrets of Chicago's riverbed
2: and set out to find a shark, yes, a deadly man-eating shark, in the waters of Lake Michigan. We'll return in just a moment with more tales guaranteed to shock and
10: astonish on Curious Cities.
3: Mystery Cities.
10: Curious City is also supported by a new innovation in app technology that is taking the tech world by storm. Poop Tracker uses flavorless edible microchips to track your poop as it moves through the sewer system. We'll even send you a postcard from the treatment plant where it finally ends up. Poop Tracker's trademarked chips also are able to count the amoebas, water bears, and other microbes in your poop. Numbers that tell you how to change your diet. Poop Tracker. Because s*** matters. Now available for iPhone and Android.
2: Welcome back to WBEZ's Curious City. I'm John Fasile. And I'm audio producer Jesse Dukes. We're pondering mysteries about Chicago sent in by curious listeners in a special edition we're calling
3: Mystery
8: City.
2: Enigmatic mysteries like this next one.
8: So I was wondering, what is at the bottom of the Chicago River?
2: Meet Mike Mitterman, resident of the Fulton River District. Mike was intrigued by a mystery that many of us cross paths with every day. What's lurking in the Chicago River? Curious City founder Jennifer Brandel, now the founder of
1: Harkin, plums the depths in a case titled, They Found It at the Bottom of the
2: River.
11: I own an inflatable kayak. And WBEZ owns an underwater camera. So I thought I'd combine them to see if I could get some answers to Mike's question. I paddled from the North Avenue Bridge, three miles southeast to Lake Michigan. But I couldn't see anything beyond a few inches below the surface, and the underwater camera couldn't either. The Chicago River is a system of interconnected waterways, and much of it is murky, which explains why I couldn't see the bottom. Turns out I should have used sound to see the bottom, and that needs a different tool.
8: It's called a side-scan sonar. The device is probably about three and a half to four feet long. It's actually shaped very much like a torpedo. It has uh, uh, two fins sticking up on the back side.
11: That's Scudder Mackey. He's a water expert at the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, hired a few years ago to map the Chicago Riverbed.
8: We're in essence doing the same thing ...as what you would do in an air photo where it's done with light, flying a plane and you you take a picture straight down at the ground. With using the side-scan sonar, we're actually using sound to paint a picture of the bottom.
11: Among the things he found? Well, for the morbid among you, yes, he has seen bodies with this device before, but not in the Chicago River. He says Chicago's river bottom has tires, remnants of industry like pipes and scaffolding, sunken boats and cars... Lots of them. And what was the most surprising thing that you found with your side-scan sonar?
8: Actually, I I think there are two things. One would be actually cars stacked on top of one another uh, near the Route 83 bridge uh, where it goes over the sand ship. That was pretty surprising. I didn't expect to see so many cars in one location.
11: Mackie guesses the 15 or so cars were ditched in this part of the river to collect
8: on insurance. And I think the other thing that surprised me was really the lack of structure, Um, how relatively featureless and smooth, much of the riverbed is.
11: The river's bottom is so smooth and so boring because mostly it's man-made. Back in the 1830s, workers began blasting and digging channels for transportation. Then later, they tried reversing the river. By 1900, they'd figured it out.
6: At the time, the river was reversed. Uh, of course, we didn't have any uh, wastewater treatment plants.
11: That's Tom Granato. He directs monitoring and research at the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District.
6: So the system was designed to convey, you know, all the waste of the area away from the city and the lake where the drinking water source was and all the stormwater drainage also so that the area wouldn't be subject to uh, heavy flooding.
11: Granado says the river was designed as a tool for economic development. And that development is responsible for what else is at the bottom of the river today. There are pathogens, bacteria from wastewater, and chemicals.
6: Probably the biggest concern with the chemicals is, uh, you know, the legacy chemicals that are um, contained in the the older sediments that are on the bottom of the waterways.
11: He says the most notorious contamination spot is Bubbly Creek on the South Branch. It's where heavy industry in the stockyards dumped waste for decades. But even with cleanup efforts and environmental concerns today, Granado says new pollution is
6: still an issue. Everything we use in our homes, shampoos and soaps, fragrances, cosmetics, medications, um, all of these things find their way down the drain.
11: And into the waste treatment plants, where trace amounts of chemicals still show up in the waterways. But despite what the Chicago River's been through over time, there is something else you can find on the bottom of it, life.
12: Why are you scared? I okay, but you're pushing me.
11: We tagged along on a field trip to the river with a bunch of teenagers in a science enrichment program. We're at Irene Hernandez Picnic Area, about halfway down the north branch of the river, between the upper watershed in Lake County and downtown Chicago.
13: Again, it doesn't have to be the pair that you're going to wear, so just grab a pair and let's walk. Mark
11: Hauser is the education director at Friends of the Chicago River and led the expedition.
13: The river is a couple inches deep, tumbling and rolling over rocks. It's about 60 feet wide. It's lovely. It's got a huge canopy of trees hanging over it.
11: The students strap on tall rubber boots and grab nets to see what they can find under the rocks.
10: It's like I
3: see them, but then I can't grab them. You see stuff? Yeah. Got one. Yeah.
2: Got
14: one. Oh, he got your fingers. so what was that? That was a... It's a crayfish. So
10: he's like...
13: mild. There's all kinds of life at the bottom of the river. You know, crayfish, all manner of crustaceans, uh, insects such as dragonflies and damselflies, uh, worms such as leeches and planaria, and uh, mollusks such as snails, slugs, things like that.
7: (laughs) We found a whole bunch of dragonflies. Yeah.
13: We didn't find any blood ones, did we?
14: we? There actually is one in here.
13: Every once in a while, we will find stoneflies or dobsonflies, which are rare insects in the Chicago River. When you find one, it actually indicates a very good river. It's actually, you know, probably cleaner than it was in the past couple decades.
11: Hauser's been on this river a ton, so I thought I'd ask the kids. Most had only seen the river from a distance. Here's Malik Johnson. Hey, Malik, were you surprised at uh, what you found in the river?
7: Yes, very surprised. It was an excellent trip. I really wasn't expecting all that, the crawfish, but it was... Could we look at the river differently now? Yes, very differently, because it's more than what you think in the bottom of it.
11: And at the very, very bottom, below all the critters and the chemicals, there sits a bedrock of limestone. Limestone that's been here for a few hundred million years and has more stories to tell of the river's bottom than we could ever know. Or that we could ever tell to Mike Mitterman, who asked us about the Chicago River in the first place.
2: From the depths of the Chicago River, we move on to the treacherous waters of Lake Michigan. 22,000 square miles of untamed wilderness home to hundreds of sunken wrecks, drowned souls, and perhaps a man-eating shark? I, audio producer Jesse Dukes, became a
1: shark hunter to solve case number 98. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Have you gone swimming in the lake lately? If so, do you know about the Lake Michigan shark attack of 1955? Yeah, you heard me. Shark attack. Our questioner, Hilary Winars, wants to know if it's a true story or urban legend.
4: Can we please get a final ruling on whether or not one young George Lawson was actually attacked by a shark in Lake Michigan in 1955 or
1: not? It sounds unbelievable. Sharks are saltwater animals, right? The lake is freshwater. But the story is actually in the Global Shark Attack File, a database maintained by the non-profit Shark Research Institute. It says a bull shark attacked Lawson without provocation. Would you like it to be true?
4: I would, actually. I think it would be really, I mean, he lived, so it's not terribly tragic. But yeah, I kind of would.
1: And I have to admit, a part of me wants it to be true, too. Not the part about a boy getting attacked. But I want to believe that a shark could make its merry way through thousands of miles of rivers into Lake Michigan. The world would just be that much more strange and wonderful and scary. So I became a detective. I searched through archives, cold-called strangers, ran down clues, and talked to experts about whether a shark could even get to Lake Michigan. My first clue was the names, the alleged victim, George Lawson, and his rescuer, John Adler. I found and tracked down a handful of people with those names in the area, and long story short, dead end. The next step, find the original source of the story. The shark database listed its source as, quote, F. Dennis, page 52. Google led me to a book called Man-Eating Sharks, published in 1975 and edited by Felix Dennis. A quote from the book.
4: Rescuer John Adler, who hauled the boy minus most of his right leg into a boat, said, quote, "I just couldn't believe it, but I had to believe what I I saw.
1: wanted to know where this Felix Dennis got that from. So I went looking for him. Turns out he's a British multimillionaire. He founded Maxim magazine and PC World among other titles. He's famous for anticipating trends and hustling to publish something just ahead of the competition. And unfortunately, he died last year." But I do have a friend in the U.K. who was willing to help us get in touch with his estate.
15: My name's Emily Charnock.
3: I'm calling on behalf of a radio show.
1: And Tokyo, it worked. City, the estate put me in touch with one of the authors of Man Eating Sharks, Christopher Rowley. He spoke to me over a fuzzy phone line in upstate New York.
6: Squirrels bite the wires around
1: here. <laughs> explained that back in 75, the movie Jaws had just made a huge splash. Hoping to capitalize, Felix Dennis hired three freelance writers, including Roly, to throw together a picture book about sharks. Fast.
6: We had a, a very short window, myself and two friends, Roger and Duncan, and it was just basically get down to the library and work like little beavers in there to um, pick up all the shark attack information we could gather in like about five weeks.
1: I read Roley, the Lake Michigan bull shark story, to refresh his memory.
6: Yeah, now I'm remembering, actually, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he says he
1: can't remember where they got the story from. Maybe you were a little confused about your geography, and maybe there was another town that had a similar name to Chicago.
6: Mm, Any chance you could have confused Chicago? I can can assure you that at that point, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) My, my, My geography is pretty solid.
1: However, Rolly admitted, they may have made a few things up. Yep, in those days, Felix Dennis was more concerned with speed than accuracy. But Raleigh doesn't think they made up the Lake Michigan story. The details are just too vivid. So all that tells us is that there may or may not be another source of the story out there. So, another approach. What about somebody who really knows Lake Michigan? I wanted to know, like, so in all that time surfing and swimming, have you ever heard of a shark in Lake Michigan?
6: No. Uh, You know, another thing that I've encountered is uh, beavers. Oh. Like like some big beavers. Definitely don't want to get too close to one, anything that could take a bite out of you.
1: Dave Benjamin of the Great Lakes Surf Um, Rescue Project. He's a surfer who teaches people about water safety. And he said a lot of people have heard of the alleged shark.
6: Every time we do elementary school presentations... They always ask if a bull shark can live in Lake Michigan. What do you tell them? We, we tell them no, that we haven't heard of any incidences, but they'll keep asking. They'll, the, the next kid will be up. Are you sure?
1: It's what I wondered, too. Can ocean sharks live in the lake?
6: I would say probably not.
1: Phil Willink is the senior research scientist at the Shedd Aquarium. And he allowed, if any shark could get into Lake Michigan, it would be a bull
13: shark. It is able to control the salt and other compounds in its blood in order to maintain a balance with the water that's around it. Wow. And that enables it to move back and forth between freshwater and saltwater. So yes, bull sharks can swim into freshwater. And we think they can stay there for several years, possibly.
1: Years. Years. And just how far away from the ocean can a bull shark get?
13: So the record that I know is in the Amazon where they found a bull shark a couple thousand miles away from the ocean. How far away from the ocean
1: is Lake Michigan? I'm going to say 1,500 to 2,000 miles. So you're saying it's possible. It is possible. It's possible for a bull shark to make its way
0: into Lake Michigan? Well, for scientists can never say anything's impossible.
1: Yeah, 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 we get it. You're a scientist. The important point here, It's possible. But, as Mr. Sports scientist Willink points out, there are big obstacles. We know sharks have actually been as close as St. Louis. But from there, they'd have to swim another 300 miles and get past 10 locks in dams. Some of which a shark could get through no problem. Others, they'd have to wait for the lock to open and sneak through. Which brings us back to... Probably not. Boring. And consider, shark attacks make the news. And there's nothing Nothing in the Chicago Tribune, The Defender, nothing about a shark attack in the 1950s. Which makes me think, this is just another bull shark story. I want to be serious for a second. I really don't think you need to worry about sharks in the lake. But, as Dave Benjamin, the surfer, points out, nearly 50 people have drowned in Lower Lake Michigan in the past two years. And he thinks all the shark hype is a distraction.
6: We get all these media attention to shark attacks around the world when more people are going to die drowning gets very little attention. And More people are concerned about being eaten by a shark than actually having a drowning accident.
1: So please, be safe out there. And if you see a shark, please give me a call.
2: Jesse still hasn't found that shark, a fact that haunts him day and night. It's my white whale that shark coming up a story about chicago's furry flying citizens in a journey to the stars but first we'll take a quick break and may i suggest you use this time to visit our website wbez.org curiouscity curious city while you're there ask us your own questions about chicago the region or its people
10: additional extra support for curious city provided by george lawson and son's spray on shark repellent Since 1955, George Lawson and Sons have been dedicated to keeping Chicago-area swimmers and lake cavorters safe from the ever-present threat of shark attack. Our original formula goes on clear, doesn't streak, and is guaranteed to make even the most gluttonous shark say, no thanks, available wherever shark repellent is sold.
1: And we're back for more of a special edition of WBEZ's Curious City, where we ponder Chicago's most elusive mysteries. I'm
2: Jesse Dukes. And I'm John Fasile. We now return to...
3: Mystery City.
2: By the way, that whispery voice
1: you've been hearing this whole time is none other than Curious City's former multimedia producer, Logan Jaffe, who now has a hotshot new job at ProPublica Illinois.
2: You're amazing. Logan, you can stop talking like that. But this is how I always talk. Come on,
1: Logan. We need you to introduce the next story in your normal voice.
3: (sighs) Fine. Chicago's after-dark activities range from the celebratory to the sinister. But if you look up and see a shadow flitting past a streetlight, it might belong to a different kind of creature of the night. Furry, winged, and by sunrise, gone. Chicago's bats, where do they hide and why? Curious City founder Jennifer Brandel and I take on case number 60, Deflator Mouse.
15: We
11: got a question from Rory Keene. He was in Chicago's downtown loop, just strolling
3: along.
0: I was heading towards the lakefront.
3: He was right at Dearborn and Adams, then out of nowhere...
0: It was really a bizarre turn of the events.
3: He looked down and...
0: Lo and behold, I saw this kind of like, tawny brown lump on the sidewalk.
3: And he wasn't quite sure what to make of it.
0: Uh, at first I thought someone had discarded their like fried chicken or whatever. But as he got closer, I saw it twitch real quick and next thing I knew it grew wings and it was flying, you know, right around my ankles and and then right past my face.
3: And quickly he realized that was not someone's fried chicken.
0: It was a bat. Which prompted
3: Rory to ask curiosity this question.
0: How did a bat get in the loop? How many of them are down here? And where are their favorite hangouts?
11: Lucky for all of us, the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo has been studying where bats hang out around Chicago
12: for the past two years. But researcher Liza Lair says it's unlikely bats spend much of their time in the loop. I think skyscrapers in the loop are probably not areas that they're really using. They're probably hanging out downtown, flying over it, eating all the insects that they can out of the parks and using that space, but they're probably not actually roosting in those areas. Lair guesses there could be up to 1,000 bats in the loop, but that's just a guess because the study actually
3: avoided downtown. So Rory's question is basically unanswerable, and it's likely the bat Rory saw downtown was just on a lunch break. But we did learn other
11: spots where bats most definitely live. For their study, the Urban Wildlife Institute selected 18 sites to monitor in the Chicago area. Most of the sites were in Cook and Kane County Forest Preserves and golf courses. But they also looked in the city, right at the Lincoln Park Zoo's Nature Boardwalk.
12: The idea was to look at how bats are using our urban environment. Where do we find them? Where do we have the most species diversity? And how does that change in the landscape? And we should mention, bats aren't the easiest creatures
3: to study. To do it right, you need special bat-detecting technology. So we bring our question-asker, Rory, over to the Bat Lab at the Lincoln Park Zoo one day to check it out, with some help from a bat expert.
0: The bat expert...
3: Yeah, she's a, a chiroptologist, is that what I both? think that's what it is.
0: Chiroptology. Yeah. Who devotes her life to chiroptology?
3: Hi. hi! That would be Julia Kilgore, another bat researcher at the zoo. This is our question asker, Rory. Oh, hi. Rory tells her the story of that time he nearly
15: stepped on a bat.
0: It was definitely furry and maybe... Auburn, red, so it was...
15: And Kilgore's already able to identify it. So that was an eastern red bat. Eastern red bats are a migratory species. It's quite possible that, like many birds, they're flying over Lake Michigan and hanging out in Chicago for a while and then continuing on their migration southward. We, We actually heard them, got recording calls of them flying around the zoo, so we know that they are at least this close to the loop.
11: Kilgore explains how they record bat calls to figure out the species
15: and their activity. Uh, I can show you a detector. It's not a glamorous piece of machinery. These are basically really fancy microphones that we stick into the sky.
11: These slender black mics are special and expensive because they only pick up
15: ultrasonic frequencies, so pitches of sound that are above human hearing. So as the bats are flying overhead and they're echolocating as they go, these microphones are picking up all of their calls and recording them.
11: Echo locating is how bats navigate the world, by sound, not so much sight. So they bounce their vocalizations off of objects and listen for the echo to gauge their surroundings. The zoo uses these special mics to identify bats around our area.
15: Each species sort of has their own kind of song. It's a very simple song, but it's essentially a song. And just by the notes that they're singing, we can tell which kind of species it is.
11: Researchers can take the recordings and shift the bat call frequencies into ranges that human ears can detect. Here are some examples. This is the sound of a hoary bat. This is a silver-haired bat. And here's what a
3: big brown bat sounds like. Okay, so based on all the recordings and research done around golf courses and forest preserves and the Lincoln Park Zoo, Here's what they've learned so far. Chicago golf courses are popular bat hangouts, particularly for the common hoary bat and the tiny eastern pipistrelle. And there's lots of bat activity in local forest preserves, too. Eastern red bats, silver-haired bats, and evening bats all hang out there. And the Zeus Liza Lair says some species, like the big brown bat, hang out almost anywhere maybe even right upstairs.
12: Certainly they like older buildings. I've heard that they like old churches, barns, things like that. So Bucktown, Wicker Park area, but I'm sure anywhere all around the city where they can use those spaces, they're probably using them.
11: To Larer, any sign of bat life is a good one. There are two big reasons she's encouraged by finding so many bats around here. The first is bats are insectivores, so they eat a lot of insects, including mosquitoes. And that other reason?
12: What's really exciting about what we found so far is all seven species that you would find in northeastern Illinois are actually using very urban. Cook County, like living right here in Chicago, is really exciting. And especially that some of those species are the species that are affected directly by white-nose syndrome. White-nose syndrome. It's a fungal disease that affects
3: bats when they're hibernating. It's spread to millions of bats and has already killed millions, too. Sometimes white will kill 98% of bats in a given location. That means finding so many bats living around our area, well, Lair sees it as a relief. But what's Rory's take?
11: Remember, he had that freaky moment where he almost stepped on a bat. You know, bats are a scary animal to many people. But do you think it's scarier to not have them potentially around?
0: See where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, when you come across something really puzzling, like white-nose syndrome is, it, that's alarming. If it spells the end for bats, it's, it's going to throw things out of balance for us. You know, what we've done is impressive in one regard, but could it have all worked out without the contributions of even these tiny, erratically flying, illogical mammals that we call bats, uh, no.
3: That story was reported by me, Logan Jaffe, and Curious City founder Jennifer Brandel.
2: Logan made a great interactive that shows where Chicago's bats live and how to find them. Check it out at wbez.org curiouscity Curious City.
3: And one last tip of the hat to questioner Rory Keene who came along with us for the investigation and did a spot-on imitation of German film director Werner Herzog.
0: The world of the bat, it's both primordial and dark. Their eyes are not attuned to the same sensations that we as human beings have. How accurate is it? Here's Herzog himself.
8: And we have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication. Even the the stars
1: up here in the the sky look like a mess.
2: You know, speaking of stars, Logan and Jesse, we're going to end our special here with a story that you two co-reported about. The The
3: night night sky. sky. The most mysterious mystery of all.
1: Look up at the night sky and you might think... How did I get here?
3: And if you live in Chicago, you might think, where are all the stars?
1: Our question asker, Paula de los Angeles, found herself considering this last question in a case titled, Dude, Where's My Stars?
3: Paula is from a smallish town in Connecticut, went to college in another small town in California, and then moved to Chicago.
14: So this is the first time where I'm I'm living in a big city. Where there are a lot of tall buildings, night lights, and everything.
1: And she noticed something really big was missing.
14: I guess it's the first time where I've looked up and it's just not that easy to see the stars. You know?
1: Maybe you don't know. If you're not like Paula, if you didn't grow up in a smaller city or rural town, maybe you have no idea what you're missing.
3: You see, Chicago has some of the worst light pollution in the country glare from streetlights and the sprawl obscures the stars. Even in far out suburbs, you can only see just a handful of stars, if you're lucky. So we asked astronomers and stargazers where Chicago's good stargazing spots are, you know, aside from the Adler Planetarium. And they all said the same thing. Nowhere. Womp. Except? You can see stars if you're in this one huge gaping dark spot. I had no idea that it would be in the middle
14: of Lake Michigan.
1: Which explains why Logan and I left the city's Orange Night Glow and went stargazing in a sailboat to give you a taste of what you are missing.
3: Paula came along for the ride, and so did this guy.
5: Larry Chupik, astronomer, Adler Planetarium. What we're doing right now uh, is we're actually trying to see how dark it gets as we go out into Lake Michigan away from the city lights. You want to be under a black sky to have the lowest light pollution.
7: We're gonna get going right we're off
13: the
5: bat here.
3: That's Aaron Olson. He was our skipper for the evening.
13: All right, and we're off.
14: So we are leaving Navy Pier on a sailboat, and it's an oh, amazing view of the city. We can see Venus, guys. Millennium Park, oh, yeah. and apparently there's Venus. Oh, yeah. Is that that very bright star out there?
5: Well, wow. Really oh, it's a planet. All right. I'll plan it. So let's see what else we can see. Yeah. Saturn is just above that Cirrus cloud patch. Still only halfway. And below we're only about Sirius as far
1: as, say, Cicero is the from right the loop. But we're already seeing stars we c- couldn't see in Chicago. So
5: also, here's the big dipper up here. <laughs> so if we cut the engine now,
13: it'll get very quiet.
5: This is crazy. Wow. Listen to the quiet. <laughs>
14: It's very quiet out here right now. We can barely see anything of the city right now. Above us, we can see a lot of stars and constellations that we can definitely not see from our apartment.
3: So How do you stargaze?
5: Well, if you find the Big Dipper, you can do star hopping. And you can star hop and follow the arc of the handle stars to Arcturus, And then you speed on to Spica. So Arcturus is another constellation. And Spica is...
1: So I'm just going to pause the tape for a second to say, Logan and I were only 11 miles out into the lake, and we could see hundreds of stars you can't see in Chicago.
3: But Chupik said he'd still only give this guy a B-minus, which ain't bad. Heck, it's better than the F he'd give to Chicago.
1: But I could see his point. We still didn't see the Milky Way, and I really wanted to see it.
3: And now back to our stargazing
5: boat.
1: How far would we have to drive to get a
5: sky this this good? You'd have to drive more than 50 miles out of Chicago, and that may not even do it.
3: So Larry, you told us before that light pollution is getting worse. So what happens if that distance keeps getting further and further?
5: You'd end up with no more sky at all. It would all look like the Chicago sky. It's a whole kind of primal feeling when you see a very dark sky. If you see stars, you think about the wider universe, and big questions come up, like, where did I come from? Where did the universe come from? So it's almost a religious experience.
3: What happens if we just don't ask those questions anymore?
5: Wow.
14: That was deep.
5: I think humans are curious... I think curiosity and intelligence goes together. Weren't we all curious as children? Some of us lost that by just everyday life. So I think everyone needs to go to a dark sky once in a while. But the problem is the darkest sky sites around the world are getting light polluted as well. So,
3: Paula... When I first saw the question that you would ask, I was like, oh, that's a fun question. And then um, we
5: turned it into a bummer.
3: And, and then we turned it into a bummer. No, but did you, I guess, did you realize when you asked that question that this is becoming more and more of a endangered experience?
14: No, I really like the way that you phrase that it, it's an endangered experience. Like, I think it's a mix of feeling like you're with a lot of other people in the city and that's that's a very human experience, but also being out in the middle of... Lake Michigan, where you can see the night sky, that's also a very human experience. So I think kind of have to pick when you're in Chicago. It's too bad that we can't see the night sky and also be around technology and a lot of lights, too.
5: I'm glad the motor started. Yeah.
3: So that's the choice we're left with in Chicago these days.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: After we started the engines and headed back to the marina, I kept looking up at the sky And all those stars we saw, they just disappeared as we got closer to the city. We saw hundreds, then dozens, then like five. All in an hour.
3: Yeah, and it's not like we didn't get an amazing view of the loop from the water. But we had to commandeer a sailboat to remind us that Chicago even has stars in the first place. And those stars are there all the time. It's just, every night? We hide them.
1: That story came from me, Jesse Dukes.
3: And me, Logan Jaffe.
1: And a few updates. Since we originally ran this story back in 2015, Larry Chupik retired from Adler Planetarium and is now astronomer emeritus and a volunteer at the Adler Planetarium. And Paula, our questioner, got married and is now Paula Lewis de Los Angeles. Congrats, Paula.
3: Like Paula and Rory Keene and the other curious citizens you heard from this hour, you can tell us what astounds you, frustrates you, perplexes you about Chicago, the region, and its people.
2: Send us your questions at wbez.org slash curiouscity, and we'll try our best to get you answers. It's what we do. Hopefully, having just spent the past
1: hour learning about bats, sharks, the bottom of the river, gym shoes hanging from power lines, and what happens when you go number two, you'll find the unknown a little more known, and Chicago a little less... Mysterious. ...and even more magical.
2: Special thanks to Joe Dassault and Justin Bull for editing and production help. Curious City's team of super sleuths includes editor Alexandra Solomon... And multimedia producer Catherine Nagasawa, as well as me, audio producer Jesse Dukes, and WBEZ's
1: senior editor of editorial operations, Sean Ali, who thinks it's so precious whenever we have
2: young children on the radio. Right, Satchel? (laughs) Mystery City was produced by me, John Fasile. Our fake podcast ads this hour were read by Sarah Liu. Support for Curious City comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. From WBEZ's Curious City, this has been... Ready, Logan?
3: Fine. Mystery City.
7: Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.